29. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 39. <coughs> Excuse me. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi standing, sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with the, with the tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, in those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No. New wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. Let's just pray. Lord God, we just ask that Steve comes to help us to learn more about your passage, that you will just really talk to each one of us. May your spirit move within us. May our ears hear what you want to have to say to us, and may our hearts just be open to your word, and that we may act on what he tells us. Amen. Thanks, Kath, and good evening to you all. My name is Steve Cooper, and it's uh, something really exciting for me to always have the opportunity to come and, and speak to you here at 6 o'clock. I, I love being here, and I love the responsiveness and open hearts of people uh, to be able to share God's word together. Also looking forward very much to the Zim Zam Assam Cafe after, uh, particularly because if you look at my topic tonight, it's called Feast or Fast. That's a question. And I'll leave it for you to decide whether you think my message is encouraging you to feast or fast at the cafe tonight. But what an opportunity for us to enjoy delicious food. Um, it's very reasonable prices and great fellowship. But I love the way that the money that's raised goes towards really worthwhile projects in, uh, in partnership with Roger Kemp, Zambia, Zimbabwe and Assam. So quite a lot of money's raised uh, each month through that. So terrific to be involved contribute and uh, be part of the fellowship there as well. Well, today's quite a special day in the life of churches around the world and for millions and millions of Christians. And the reason why it's a significant Sunday is because today is the first Sunday in the season of Lent in the church year. Now, you might be wondering what on earth Lent is all about. And I just want to take a few moments to talk about that. Um, I've been a Baptist Christian most of my life, 
I've, I've been certainly visited a lot of other churches and have many friends from other traditions. Uh, but for me, in my experience as a Baptist, uh, Baptist churches haven't made much of a big deal of this season of Lent. Traditionally, Lent is a period of preparation for Easter. Uh, Easter this year is very early. It's the last weekend of March. Um, but Easter is very special. I'm sure we can all agree on that. Uh, Easter celebrates the two big events in the Christian year, the Christian calendar, the, the death of Jesus on the cross, his suffering in our place, and then his resurrection. So the Thursday night of Easter, the Friday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, the, the real highlight of the Christian year. But sadly, uh, for many of us, including I think many Baptist people, we don't really engage with Easter very much until we come right to the week. And many people will rock up on maybe the Thursday night and say, well, I need to start preparing and getting in the mood for Easter. Now, that's good. It's a great thing to do. But it's a shame when weeks before we haven't really been thinking about it and preparing for Easter uh, because the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus is so special and so much at the heart of the Christian gospel that we should be thinking about it and preparing ourselves for a meaningful celebration of Easter. Lent goes for six Sundays. It goes for 40 days uh, while we anticipate Easter. The 40 days, of course, um, is a significant number in the Bible, particularly Jesus. Um, we learn in the Gospels that Jesus went for 40 days and he fasted in the wilderness and he wrestled with temptation and with sin and his mission. But traditionally, Lent is meant to be a time for self-examination, for penitence, for repentance, for spiritual renewal, for probing deeply into our own hearts and lives and reflecting on what is really going on there. And sometimes it's very messy, but having the courage to face that mess with the grace and the power of God and doing that in a courageous manner. Lent is a time to deepen our, our devotional lives. Uh, that might be for each of us personally, but for us as a church as well, to deepen our devotional life, our relationship with God. It's an opportunity to renew our commitment to Jesus as his disciples and also to participate in a community of disciples. Now, as I said before, most Baptist churches around the world these days don't focus very much on the Lenten period, although I hasten to say that some do. I'm aware of some in Australia that the Lent period is very precious for them. And I know in other countries, I've just been over in England a couple of months ago, and I know there's many Baptist churches over there that really find this a very special and meaningful time of the year. In previous generations, many Baptist churches did make quite a big deal of the Lent season and I can tell that from the old Baptist hymn books and the old guidelines to uh, pastors and to worship leaders. Lots of material, lots of prayers, lots of ideas to make the Lenten celebration meaningful for God's people. Now for me personally I think that there is some value in a season like Lent. Just being aware of it. Spending time in preparation and self-examination. I find that my own experience of Good Friday and, and the Thursday night of Easter and Easter Sunday 
is enriched as I reflect and pray during Lent. An example of that would be on Good Friday, I come to church and I think about Jesus on the cross, how he suffered for me and for my sins in my place. But if I just rock up to church on that Friday and haven't thought much about it, it's going to have a certain level of meaning. But if in the six weeks ahead of that, I've been grappling with my sins and examining myself and inviting the Holy Spirit to show me the sins in my own life, then when I come to Good Friday, it's extra special and deep and meaningful. It's not a superficial experience. That's how I find it anyway, and I commend that to you. Of course, there are dangers in observing any Christian tradition or practice, including Lent, and I'll touch on a few of those dangers a little bit later in my message. But tonight, as we consider this account about Jesus in Luke chapter 5, I'd like us to explore what does this passage mean for us during this Lenten period? You might like to have your Bible open or we'll have some verses up there on the screen uh, so you can meditate on the verses as we go along. Now this incident in Luke chapter 5 begins with Jesus showing interest in a man who the Pharisees regarded as unclean and unacceptable. The verses are up there on the screen, but let me read them for you again. Verse 27, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Tax collectors were not very well liked back in the days of Jesus. Even though this man was Jewish, uh, these tax collectors were regarded by most Jews as extortionists as traitors, as collaborators with the Romans. And as we'll be seeing tonight in our passage, the stricter sects of the Jewish people, like the Pharisees, they viewed tax collectors as unclean, as impure people, who should be excluded from one's friendship and social circles. People who shouldn't be allowed within the temple and the synagogue because they're impure and they just don't belong there. In fact, not only the strict sects like the Pharisees, but most ordinary Jewish people would have stayed a mile away, had nothing to do with tax collectors. And yet, here is Jesus. Jesus approaches this man by the name of Levi. Uh, we learn from Matthew's Gospel that his name is also Matthew. Uh, he's the writer of Matthew's Gospel, of course, becomes one of the 12 apostles uh, in Mark and in Luke. He's called Levi, which is probably his, his Jewish name, his Hebrew name, his Aramaic name perhaps. Uh, and, and Matthew is his Greek name uh, because in those days, you know, Saul, Paul and lots of people had two names depending on the company that they're keeping a Jewish name and a, a Roman or Greek name as well. And Jesus invites this guy, Matthew or Levi, to become a disciple. And what is thrilling and exciting, it should be for us as we read this story, is that this guy responds immediately. He just walks away from his table and he follows Jesus. He's ready to pay the cost of following Jesus. And back in those days, it should have thrilled the onlookers to see such a dramatic response to see Levi's life changing for the better. But sadly, that wasn't the case, as we see. Jesus was certainly thrilled. 
he gladly accepts the invitation to a party. And next few verses from verse 29. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners, they grumble. Now here is a clash. A clash that's going on between two very different styles of religion. I, I love looking at that picture up the top and looking at the faces can you see the contrast in the looks on people's faces? There's Jesus on the one hand. He's in the middle. He's celebrating that sinners are being saved and lots of people around the table are just as excited as Jesus is. The Pharisees on the other, have a look at them up on the top left with their grumbly, gloomy faces. They are annoyed. They are critical that Jesus would spend time with people like these with outcasts and people that they regard as unclean. Well, Jesus speaks again. He explains to them exactly what he's doing. He wants to be unambiguous here. See him looking straight at these grumbling, whinging men. Verse 31. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy you need a doctor, but those who are ill. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Of course, Jesus is speaking in ironic language here. He knows very well that these Pharisees and their friends are not well, that they are not righteous. They think that they are. They're actually self-righteous. They're proud people who look down on others who are not strict observers like they are. They think that they're well, they think that they don't need to turn from sin, but Jesus, the doctor, knows. He's done his diagnosis. He knows that they are sinners and they need saving as well. He's using these ironic words to, to provoke them into thinking and reflection, as Jesus often so effectively does in his communication. Now, the sins of these Pharisees is exposed here. These people have lost touch with the heart of God. A God who loves all people. A God who calls all sinners to be forgiven and to be saved. But these Pharisees, instead of that, have set up boundaries. Boundaries to the love of God. They will only love people who are like them. They will only love people who follow the traditions and practices of strict Jews. The sin of people like this constrains them. It restricts them from all the kinds of people that they should be welcoming into their social circles. Well, as the narrative continues, the sin of these Pharisees becomes even more fully apparent and revealed. Reading here from verse 33. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. And the word fast, of course, is talking about uh, a time when a religious person will deliberately go without some food or something else that's normal and precious for them uh, because they want to focus on God. They want to focus on prayer and the word of God. And Jesus makes it clear that all of his disciples should do this on occasion when it's appropriate. So that the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. 
And Jesus answered, verse 34, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. Now, Jesus is not against fasting. Uh, he himself fasted in the wilderness. Back a few chapters before this, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Jesus goes for 40 days in the wilderness. And there he's fasting as he meets with Satan and as he deals with difficult issues of his mission, temptations. And Jesus, of course, successfully deals with that and moves on to his public ministry. But Jesus expected his disciples to fast in the future years in order to pray and to seek the face of God. Now look at what he says here right at the end of verse 35. In those days they will fast. After Jesus' death on the cross, after his resurrection, after his ascension, this will be a normal practice for Jesus' disciples. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about fasting. He gives instructions in Matthew chapter 6. And he says, when you fast, he doesn't say if you fast, but when you fast, here are the attitudes you should have. You don't do it to kind of boast and grandstand and impress everybody with your spirituality. No. You do it privately before God because you're really wanting to seek God and know him and, and, and bring you have a burden on your heart in your prayer life you want to bring to God because you're very serious about that. But in this time for Jesus that we're reading of here in the Gospels, when sinners like Levi and his mates are following Jesus, it's a time for celebration. It's a time for feasting. The religious practices of these Pharisees tended towards gloom and restraint, while Jesus is joyful. Jesus is excited that through him, people are encountering the kingship of God, the kingdom of God. They're coming to know God as their king. They're submitting their lives to God and experiencing the joy and the freedom and the forgiveness that God alone offers when we surrender to him. Now, Jesus continues to explain how the religious practices of the Pharisees are incompatible with his own practices. Luke calls this a parable. I'm reading here from verse 36. He told them this parable. No one sews a pair of a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, I will have torn the new garment. The patch from the new will not match the old. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. Wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. No one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. Now, Jesus' parables are very fascinating, aren't they? They cause us to think and to grapple more deeply with what Jesus means. The main meaning here, of course, the main point he's making should be very clear to us from this parable, that the old and the new are fundamentally irreconcilable. But what's not obvious, though, in this parable is whether Jesus represents the new or the old. During the last week, I was having a look. I was comparing three Gospels where this story occurs, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I was thinking now... They're a little bit different to each other, but they're fundamentally the same. But in every one of the three Gospels, I couldn't work out exactly whether Jesus represents the new or the old. If the way of Jesus is the new way, 
It's fresh and vibrant and innovative, threatening those who cling to the, the old traditions. But if Jesus' way is the old way, it's because he's in touch with the ancient purpose of God, the God who loves all sinners and wants them all to be saved, while the Pharisees, on the other hand, follow these new paths which are actually quite inconsistent with God's purposes. And that, to me, is one of the fascinating and, and intriguing things about the parables of Jesus, these little pithy stories that they tell. They often tease us. They often tantalise us. They provoke us. I once heard a preacher saying, and I think this preacher was from the US, he's imagining a cowboy out on the range riding his horse, and he says, a parable of Jesus can be like a burr in one's mental saddle. And I have this image of, you know, a cowboy riding along and suddenly he feels a burr under his backside. He's like, oh, that's uncomfortable. What do I do here? Not sure how to handle it. A burr in one's mental saddle. Something that unsettles us, that provokes us into deep reflection and can even cause, hopefully, a change of life that is more pleasing and honouring to God. But even though there's a bit of ambiguity in this parable, what is clear is this, is that here are two very different kinds of spiritualities. They can't be mixed. We have to choose, is what Jesus is saying, to choose one or the other approach to our spiritual lives. So this story shows Jesus dealing with these religious people who have moved away from God's purposes. They've lost touch with God's heart. These Pharisees and their scribes observe traditions and practices which are very precious to them. But when they see Jesus associating with people that they despise and not following the strict practices that their Jewish sect observed, they are critical. They even have the effrontery and the gall to face up to Jesus and to challenge him and to rebuke him and criticise. These Pharisees represent a sin that is always a real danger for religious people, including Christians today. The sin is this, that we might hold on to religious practices and traditions which actually are constraining us and restricting us from being in touch with God's heart. That's something for me to reflect on and you to reflect on as well. The failure of these Pharisees causes us to examine ourselves during this Lenten period. Do we, like Jesus, reach out to sinners? Do we share the joy of those who turn to God? Do we throw a party? Or do we, like the Pharisees, categorise people? We label people. We exclude those that we see as sinners. Do we practice a religion that is gloomy and critical of others who are different from ourselves? In other words, do our spiritual practices tend towards feasting or fasting? I'm reminded here of a story that's told by Tony Campalo in his book, The Kingdom of God is a Party. Uh, Tony Campalo is... Uh, uh, an American Baptist pastor 
uh, a guy who is very humorous and fun to listen to if you want to Google him sometime and have a listen to some of his talks, but uh, quite willing to confront people and deal with messy situations. But Campalo had flown in this story into Hol Hol how do I say it? Honolulu. <laughs> a bit of a tongue twister there. Honolulu. And he was unable to sleep because of the time that he'd arrived there in the city. So we ventured into an all-night diner. You know, in the United States they have these all-night diners. Well, here is one in Honolulu. And there he overheard a group of women speaking and he worked out very quickly that all of this group of women were prostitutes uh, that have been doing their business during the night and here they are in the small hours of the morning talking to together. And Campalo overheard one of the women mentioning to her friends that the next day uh, was her birthday. It's her 39th birthday. And one of the other women replied scornfully, what do you want then, a birthday party? And the first woman who had spoken said this. She, she retreated in her, into her defensive shell and she said, I, I've never had one of those in my whole life. Uh, why should I expect one now? And as Campalo listened to that conversation, particularly between those two women, he thought what a good idea it would be to conspire with the owner of the diner and throw her a surprise party the next night. And so a cake was baked. It was all prepared. And the cries of happy birthday from a small group of friends and this stranger, Tony Campalo, left her absolutely stunned. She was shocked that anyone would go to this much trouble just for her. She asked if she could take the cake home and then she left the diner with her prize. And when she left, uh, Tony turned to the little group of her friends and he said, I I'd like to lead us in a prayer for that woman. Do you mind? Is that okay? And I thought this is a bit weird, but okay, if you want to pray, that's all right. And Tony prayed for her salvation. He prayed that her life will change. He prayed for God to be good to that woman. The owner of the diner was quite startled by this prayer and what Tony was doing and he, he was actually quite hostile and antagonistic and he called out and said, uh, you never told me, mate, you're a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And Campolo responded that he belonged to a church that threw birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Now, that answer from Tony may surprise us, uh, especially if people are outsiders. That comment would raise scepticism, wouldn't it? They'd say, well, there's no church in the world like what you're talking about, Tony. Or even for insiders like us, us that kind of comment might meet with disdain. And we might say, well, uh, we never do anything like that in our church, uh, hold a party like that at 3.30 in the morning. But actually what Tony was doing here parallels the kind of thing that Jesus did in reaching out to those who are lost and despised. So what do I encourage all of us tonight, myself and you as well, to enter into this season of Lent, these coming six weeks that lead us up to Easter, to prepare for Easter. And during this time to intentionally examine ourselves, our, our spiritual lives, our souls if you like, and invite the Holy Spirit to show to us the sins that we often ignore. I mean, many of us are aware of blatant sins that we do. That's not too hard to see. And maybe we confess those to God and then we move on. And that's good. But sometimes there are sins lurking deep inside. 
that we try to hide from. We try to hide from God, try to hide from other people, try and hide even from ourselves. It's messy, it's dirty. We'd rather not go there. But maybe Lent is a good time to go there in the power of the Spirit and with the grace and love and mercy and power that Jesus offers to us. Of course, there's a danger in all spiritual traditions, including Lent. They easily become just a ritual, a meaningless ritual, where we go through the outward practices, but in our hearts, we're not being thoughtful, we're not being genuine about encountering with God. And maybe the tradition might make us self-righteous, like these Pharisees are in the story that we're looking at tonight. They thought they were better than others. They looked down on others who didn't observe the tradition. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't follow a tradition like Lent. We can be alert to the dangers. And a spiritual practice like Lent can be enormously enriching for us and help us especially as we anticipate and prepare for the Easter season. So if you examine your heart and life during this Lenten period, maybe you'll find that your sin is like that of these Pharisees we've been learning about tonight, where your beliefs and practices restrict you. Maybe you need to break free. Wouldn't that be great? Lots of people in our church in these coming 40 days breaking free, hallelujah, from the chains because they're willing to go to the mess, probe and let God's spirit examine us and show us what's wrong that we should address. You might be wondering how to do this in practical ways. Well, there's all kinds of resources around online. Just Google Lent prayers, Lent devotions, Lent resources, Lent Bible passages, whatever you Google, heaps and heaps of stuff. Just have a look at it and find something that's meaningful and helpful for you if you like. Uh, in our church library, we have a number of books that deal with the big themes of Jesus' suffering, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. Here's one called Why the Cross. It's in our church library. There's a little selection we've put on a table uh, up the back there. If you want to borrow one of those, there's a chart. You can fill that in and take it home. Maybe over the coming six weeks, you'll just work through one of these books, meditate on it, look up appropriate scriptures, and let it be a time of examination and reflection. I'd like to finish my message tonight with a prayer. This prayer has been handed to you as you came in. I hope you've got a copy there. Please take it. It's got a little heading on the top. It just says Lent. And it's a prayer I came across a month or two ago which really appeals to me. It's a very old prayer written by Bernard of Clairvaux. You'll notice there he lived in the 12th century AD. He was a Cistercian monk. He lived in France. Um, as you think about the words of this prayer, it's a little bit quaint because it's old language, but it's been translated, of course, from the French into the English. But what I like about this prayer is that Bernard is wrestling with sin and he's probing, he's letting God show to him the stuff that is yuck and mess in his own heart and life. And he's crying out to God and saying, God, please do something about this. I really want God, you to be the king of my life, not this other stuff that threatens to replace you as king. Let me read the prayer to you and if this appeals to you, take it away and pray this prayer, reflect on it in coming days, maybe for all these coming six weeks, along with other prayers that you'll find. 
and let this be a time for you of refreshment and renewal, spiritual examination and preparation for Easter. Here's the prayer. O Lord, come quickly and reign on your throne. For now often something rises up within me and tries to take possession of your throne. Pride, covetousness, that means, you know, jealous of other people who have something that you don't have. Uncleanness and sloth, that means laziness. Uh, Want to be my kings. And then evil speaking, anger, hatred, and the whole train of vices. Join with me in warring against myself. Try to reign over me. I resist them. I, I cry out against them. And I say, I have no other king than Christ. <laughs> o king of peace, come and reign in me. For I will have no king but you. Amen.